0: I want to thank you for joining me today to learn a little bit about our faith together. And uh, today, Bishop Sheen will teach us on how to pray the Our Father. And it's a beautiful gospel passage that our Lord taught his disciples how to pray the Our Father. And so Bishop Sheen will give us that lesson today. And so I'd encourage you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
1: The subject of this evening's meditation will be choice. I will try to bring home to you the supreme alternatives that are before us. The alternatives of our eternal destiny. And I will begin by giving you two examples of choice. Because after all, our heaven or hell is before us every day. But there come great moments, too, when we make decisions for much of our life. One of these stories will be taken from Paris and the other from London. And both of them were my own experiences. I had gone down from Brussels to Paris to preach a sermon on the second Sunday of February... And I stayed in a small hotel. There was an Englishman playing the piano in an adjoining room and playing it well. I complimented him and then I asked him if he would like to go out for dinner. He said, I've never talked to a priest before in my life. Well, we're just like anyone else. You stick me with a pin, I will jump too. <laughs> so we sat down to table in this small restaurant, and he said, Do you ever have questions to answer? This is my problem. I have never met in my life one good man or one good woman. I thanked him for the compliment. And then he went on. He said, now this coming 11th of February, over there at that table, there was a lady trying to break a lump of sugar in a cup of coffee. She couldn't do it, so I went over and broke the lump for her. And she told me how mean her husband was to her. I asked her to come to live with me. Well, she did, and I get tired of them all after about 12 months. So, he said this morning, I bundled up all of her clothes. I left them with the concierge, but she anticipated my move, and she gave me this note. Dear puppy, if you refuse to continue living with me until our anniversary, the 11th of February, I shall commit suicide by throwing myself into the seine. Now, may I permit her to live with me to prevent suicide? I said, no, you may not do evil. that good may come from it. And furthermore, she will not commit suicide. It got to be about 11 o'clock at night. He said, I will walk you back to the hotel. I'm not going to the hotel. I'm going to Montmart. He said, I was just beginning to think that maybe you were all right. And now you tell me you're going up to that hellhole. Well, I said, there's something else in the hill of Montmartre, besides dives. There's a great basilica there, the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. And every night for over 50 years, there are a thousand men in prayer all night long. I induced him to come with me. He said, how long? I said, I will leave when you are ready to leave, though I intend to stay all night. He made no move to go until the sun came up over Paris and I read Mass. Walking down the hill of Montmartre, he said, will you stay in Paris and teach me to be good? It's the first time in my life I've ever contacted goodness. I agreed to meet him that night in his courtyard at 8 o'clock. He came in with a woman, not the one that was involved in the story. And he said we will go out to dinner, the three of us. And I said, no, this is not a social evening. You must make a choice. Either you are going out with that woman, or you were going out with me. He walked up and down the courtyard a couple of times and came back and said, "Well, Father, I think that I'll go out with her. And that's the end of the story. The choice was made after having received a great grace please god before he dies he will recall that night at montmart that was a choice for evil another kind of choice i spent about seven or eight years of my life in all in a parish in london in the soho square district i opened the church door this particular morning it was a cold january morning <coughs> Heavy London fog. And a limp figure fell in. A young woman. I said, how did you happen to be here? Where am I, Father? I said, oh, Father? Yes, she said, I used to be a Catholic, but not anymore. You were drunk. Yes, she said, I was drunk. Well, I said, men drink because they like the stuff. Women drink because they don't like something else. What were you running away from? She said, three men. I was in love with each of them and they were beginning to find it out. And so I got drunk. What is your name? And pointing to a billboard opposite the church on the walls of the Cross and Blackwell jam office I said, Is that your picture over there? Yes, I'm meeting leading lady in that musical comedy. I made a cup of coffee for her for she was frozen from the night exposure. She said, Thanks. I said, No, come back this afternoon and thank me. She said, I will on one condition that you do not ask me to go to confession. I said, very well, I shall not ask you to go to confession. She said, I want you to promise me faithfully that you will not ask me to go to confession. I said, I promise you faithfully that I will not ask you to go to confession. She came back that afternoon before matinee And I said, we have two paintings in this church that are very notable. Would you like to see them? As I took her down the side aisle of the church, I pushed her into a confessional. I always keep my promises. Two years later, I gave her her veil as a nun in the convent of adoration, where she is to this very hour. So that cold January morning, another choice had to be made, and it was a choice for good. And this is the choice that each and you, of every each and every one of us is making. Now let me read you about the two choices. One from the Old Testament and the other from the New. Incidentally, I will always be reading from the New English Bible. The New English Bible, which is, by all odds, the most beautiful of the texts. God speaks. I offer you the choice of life or death, blessing or curse. Choose life, and then you and your descendants will live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, and hold fast to him. Or else, if you choose evil, you will be cursed. Now, from the New Testament, from Matthew, it is remotely possible that I have missed my reference, but I know I have it here. I get so nervous when I miss anything. Our Lord and Savior is speaking. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide that leads to perdition, and there is plenty of room on the road. And many go that way. But the gate that leads to life is small, and the road is narrow. And those who find it are few. This was much more intelligible in the days when the city was surrounded by walls. There was the great gate that opened up into the highway and the very narrow gate, the narrow road that led into separate houses. So our Lord is saying there's a broad road Wide gate, and many travel that road. There's a narrow road, and a narrow gate, and few there are who go in. Now, suppose it be said. But I will not make a choice. I will live indifferently. Not to make a choice is to choose. No boy, for example, ever decides in life that he's going to be ignorant. He just doesn't study. No one ever decides that he is going to be a dishonest criminal. He just does not practice honesty. White fences do not remain white fences. They become black fences because we do not paint them and take care of them. Naturalists tell us that the mole which burrows in the ground once had eyes to see But he chose not to use those eyes. And nature, as if seated in judgment, said, take the talent away. There is an animal called the crustacea in one of the caves of Kentucky. The seemingly has perfect eyes. If you cut the eye with the scalpel, you find all of the nerves desiccated. It chose the darkness and the penalty was the loss of vision. So everybody is making a choice even when they do not choose. Now what are some of these choices? How are they pictured? Well, first of all, I think the choice that is offered us is something like the choice that was offered on the sunlit portico of Pontius Pilate the day that he brought our blessed Lord and Barabbas out before the mob. Now our blessed Lord had the bloody sweat the night before. He was scourged. He was made king for a day. When I visited Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I noticed on the walls of the floor of the Praetorium of Pilate for example a big letter B, beta Greek letter then the Roman numeral 12 and then other numbers these carvings and the great rocks in the Praetorium of Pilate were a game the soldiers played teen for a day The B meant Basilius in Greek, king. If the dice would fall in that B, he was king for a day. Now when our blessed Lord was brought down into that praetorium, they mocked him, they put on a crown of thorns, they gave him a reed, they put on a purple robe, and they bowed before him mockingly as their king and their lord. Now Pilate brings him out on his sunlit portico and with him. Barabbas, a great popular hero. Let us remember that. He was not just a robber, as has been described. He was rather a revolutionist. And there was reason for revolution in Jerusalem because the Jews were under the servitude of the Romans. He was anti-establishment. He was popular because he was violent. He tried to overthrow the Roman authority. And Pilate now brings out on the court these two figures. There is even some evidence in the early manuscripts of Scripture that the name of Barabbas, but Barabar means in Hebrew son. Rabbas is rabbi. So he was the son of the Father. Pilate therefore was really saying, which shall I release to you, Jesus, the Son of the Heavenly Father, or the Son of the Father, Barabbas. They chose Barabbas. Release unto us Barabbas. That's right with your Christ. Crucify him. And we have that choice. We are in many more important moments of our life making that decision. We are opting for the hero or we are opting for the one who for the moment is quite unpopular. Or to put it in an other scriptural language. We are going to one of two cities. St. Augustine of the 4th of the century wrote a book called The City of God in which he contrasted it with The City of Evil. Now, in the last book of Scripture, which is the book of Revelation, there are two cities that are described. This is, I think, one of the most apropos books of modern times. It's very, very difficult to understand, and there are many things in it which we'll never understand until it's too late, really. But there are two cities. One is the city of Babylon, and the other is the city of Jerusalem. Not the Babylon, the historical Babylon. But the Babylon that is yet to come. The corrupt city of evil. And this is the way John describes it. Then one of the seven angels that held the seven bowls came and spoke to me and said, Come, and I will show you the judgment on the great whore enthroned above the ocean. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and on the wine of her fornication, men all over the world had made themselves drunk. In spirit, he carried me away into the wild, and there I saw a woman mounted on a scarlet beast, which was covered with blasphemous names. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold cup full of obscenities and the foulness of her fornication. And written on her forehead was a name with a secret meaning Babylon the Great, the mother of horrors and every obscenity on the earth. The woman I saw was drunk with the blood of God's people and with the blood of those who had borne their testimony to Jesus. That is one city. Then the other city which will be at the end of time. Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Our blessed Lord. Who is the wife or the bride of the Lamb? The church. All of us who will be members in heaven, one of another, so when spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. It had the radiance of some priceless jewel, like just, clear as crystal. It had a great wall with twelve gates, at which were twelve angels, and on the gates were inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So ultimately, at the end of our choice, after having chosen either Christ or Barabbas, there will be two cities awaiting us, the city of Babylon and the great marriage, for in heaven there will be the marriage of the Lamb and the Bride, which is the Church. Now let us look at a few characters who have made this choice. St. Augustine. St. Augustine was the hippie of early the early church. He was a very learned man, dissolute, but he still had a yearning to be good. And he often prayed, Dear Lord, I want to be good, but not now. A little later on, we all say that prayer. And one day he was with his friend, Alipius in a garden. And he was torn on the inside between following the way of the Spirit and following the way of the flesh. And he heard a voice, the voice of a child, Saying, Tole, Lege, take up the book and read. And he read from the Epistle of the Romans, not in chamberings and in impurities, but in obedience to the Spirit. And Augustine chose that day to follow Christ and became one of the great saints of the church. even pagans had this choice five or six centuries before christ was the great teacher of antiquity socrates and he was constantly telling the youth of athens that there was an absolute morality and there was one god but not many And that was a crime against the state. Socrates was condemned to death. And they offered him a chance to escape because of his influence and his prestige and his goodness. And Socrates would not escape. And they gave him the hum hemlock juice. And he drank it And as he was losing consciousness, he said, Oh yes, I owe a rooster to Asclepius. Refusing to escape, he said, I shall follow whatever way God leads me. So even the pagans have the choice. An interesting story from the Old Testament. There was a famine in the city of Bethlehem and Ruth left the city of Bethlehem or rather the town of Bethlehem and went into the Moab country. Now that was non-Jewish and she should not have done it even during a famine. And she took with her her two sons. They married two Moabite women. The two sons died. Naomi had two daughters-in-law in her hand. One was Ruth, and the other was Orphan. And Naomi said, I'm going back again to my own land. Now choose what you will do. Ruth said, your God shall be my God. Your country shall be my country. Your Lord, my Lord. I shall go with you. Orphe went back to her pagan people. Ruth became the great grandmother of King David. who was the notable king who foretold the kingship of our blessed Lord. So at the beginning, therefore, of of these series of conferences, think on the choice that you are making. Never be discouraged. You have plenty of help. We will develop that as time goes on. And perhaps I can describe maybe some of the difficulties that we have and the hopes in terms of some of the great sculpture of Michelangelo. Michelangelo was commissioned to do the tomb of Julius II. This tomb was never finished. What you see in Florence today are four half-formed figures Coming out of the marble, struggling, striving to be released. That is a picture of ourselves. We know this choice is before us. We're striving. The flesh weighs upon us, old habits, weakness of will. But like these characters, We hope for an upsurge from all that is cold and inert. The second statue. The statue of King David. A sculptor in Florence tried to make a statue, and he ruined it. But it was a beautiful piece of Carrara marble, One day Michelangelo passed by and saw that marble, asked that it be brought to his studio, applied his genius, his inspiration, and his skill, and brought out of it the immortal statue of David. And so though our lives have been spoiled, though they may have been hacked and ruined by circumstances or other artists, the great finger and hand of God can mold us into immortality. And finally, the Pieta. Here is a young woman having seen her divine son crucified and then taken down and put in her lap as a kind of a drain chalice And yet she's not broken with grief. There's not sadness. There is peace. There is resignation to God's will. An interior calm. For she sees that sacrifice was part of the divine message to her son and to herself. And as we struggle to overcome all of the alien influences that there are in the world, those we will talk about too, as we struggle to overcome them, we're never to be cast down by trials, by discipline, by mortification. We have God with us. Christ is in our souls. You're good people. You would not be here if you were not good. And even though you're not as good as you would want to be, you've come here because you want to be better. There's a deep yearning today in the American soul for goodness and spirituality. And you manifest it. And if you bear with me during these talks, I will lead you step by step to inner peace, to inner joy and consolation. Thank you. And God love you. The gospel which you have just heard read is on the subject of prayer. And it is one in which the disciples came to our Lord and asked him, how should we pray? And in answer he gave them the prayer, which we know so well, the Our Father. Now I'm going to describe be our Father to you and explain it to you. Notice that our blessed Lord said, "When you pray, say Our Father. Our Lord did not say, My Father. It is interesting to go through the Gospels and note that never once did our Lord say of you and me and himself, Our Father. He said, I will ascend to my father and your father, never our father. Why? Because he's he is God. He's the natural son of God. We're only the adopted children. And he makes that distinction. So he says to us, when you pray, you say, our father. Now, we do not get the full impact of this, but just put yourself in the mentality of the Jews who heard it. Remember that the name of God was so sacred to the Jews that there was one name for him they would never pronounce. It was too sacred. And even in the Old Testament, we find only two or three instances in which God is called Father, and then there's always another word to modify it. They were so very careful to glorify the Heavenly Father. Now, when we come, however, to our blessed Lord, see the familiarity with which he talks about his Father. He's in my Father's working until now, and I work. The night of the Last Supper... When Philip said, show us the Father, our Lord said, Philip, Philip, have I been with you all this time? And still you do not understand? The Father and I are one. So the Jews, therefore, stood at a great distance from the name of God. Now our blessed Lord used a word, which we use only when we're children. When our blessed Lord spoke to his heavenly Father, he used very often and probably throughout the entire gospel, but we know on certain occasions, he used the word Abba, A-B-B-A. It is not a good Aramaic word. And our Lord spoke Aramaic. What is Abba? Father. Is it just father in the abstract sense of the word? No. Children have a pet name for their father. It, may, it might, for example, at the very beginning of a child's life be Dada. Now that's what Abba means. It was the child's name for the father. So contrast on one side, the fear of the Jews of ever pronouncing the name of God and then our blessed Lord coming to earth and calling him Abba. That's why they picked up stones on three occasions to, to kill him. And he said, why do you do this? And they said, because you made yourself one with the Father. Sure, his nature was one with the Father. And so important is this word Abba that when St. Paul began preaching the gospel of our Lord to the Greeks when he wrote, he wrote in Greek. He took the Aramaic word Abba and kept it in the Greek. So that in two of his letters one of them... uh, and the romans and the other to the galatians he tells his people remember that your father is abba that he has given you the spirit of adoption to be his children so this is the beginning of the our father our father then who art in heaven we start above we can never lift ourselves with the lobes of our ears We live in a horizontal world where we believe we help one another, but the real help that makes us new creatures and children of God has to come from above. And our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. That means, may it be sanctified, may it be glorified. And may you be worshipped. Now, what is worship? For example, we think, well, why does God demand our worship? Is he sitting up there in a golden throne waiting for us as obedient servants of him to prostrate ourselves before him in worship? Is that the meaning of worship? No. Now, when, how often, for example, a little girl in the springtime Girl about three or four will go out into the garden, into the yard, and pick up dandelions and bring dandelions into the mother. Now, let me tell you that those dandelions are a bore to the mother. She wouldn't admit it. She doesn't need the dandelions. But has any mother in the world, when she's taken these dandelions, ever throwing them out into the garbage? No, she says, oh, how nice of you, dear, you love me, don't you? And so the mother accepts that worship in order to train the daughter to be loving. Now, that's what worship is. In the theater, for example, we applaud. Applaud means worthful. That's worship. Now, a week ago Sunday, I gave a retreat to about 1,200 actors and actresses in New York at the Majestic Theater. The retreat lasted all day. And about six or seven times during the day, I would come out and, and talk to all of these people who were so trained in the theater. Well, unlike other audiences on the stage they appreciate applause they live by applause so they think that anyone who appears on the stage must live by it too so very often in the course of a talk they would interrupt what I was saying by applause why? because it was a manifestation of worthfulness that's what worship is God doesn't need it we need it So, hallowed be thy name. Now thus far, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. These two phrases go together. Now we priests who are used to reading the Psalms and the Scriptures have always noticed in the Scriptures the balance of phrase. For example, in the Psalms you'll find... A sentence thy statutes O Lord are good then the other half thy commandments are wise in the second half we say the same idea as we do in the first but we just put it in different words so in the our father these two phrases thy kingdom come thy will be done mean practically the same. How do we get into the kingdom of God? By doing his will. Now, many are going to get into the kingdom of God because they're doing his will according to their lights. But suppose we do not do his will. My finger, pointed vertically, signifies the will of God because it points to heaven. My finger horizontally represents my will because it's earthy and flat. Suppose I take my will and put it across God's will. When I do that, I get physically across. Psychologically, I get a complex. That's how we get mixed up. Now, I hope I have a pencil here. I'll use that as an illustration, too. Here is a pencil. Is this pencil good? Yes, it's a good pencil. Why? Because it writes. That's the way you know when anything is good, if it fulfills the purpose for which it is made. When, therefore, I want this pencil to write God, it writes the word God. Suppose this pencil had a will of its own. And suppose when I wanted to write the word God, it wrote the word dog. I couldn't do anything with it. That is why when we fail to live up to God's law, He can't use us. As I couldn't use this pencil. We lack His power. And the more effective any person is in the church and in the world depends upon his relatedness to being under the hand of God so that he can use us as instruments. Or to give you another example suppose I try to open a tomato can with this pencil. Now I do my own cooking so I'm used to opening cans but not with pencils and I'm a terrible cook Betty Crocker one day saw me cooking through a brick through the window. Suppose now I tried... I tried to open a tomato can with this pencil. One, I wouldn't open the can. And two, I would ruin the pencil. So when we try try to achieve happiness in some other way than a God-appointed way, supposed by drugs or alcohol or vice, anything of that kind. We think we're going to get a lot of pleasure out of it, but actually we never get the pleasure we intended and we hurt ourselves. Thus the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, means that we enter into the kingdom of God by doing his will, and that makes us happy. This is the secret of peace. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice that the petitions of the Our Father have a division in the middle. The first three petitions refer to the heavenly, to God. Then we get this middle one. We can't live without bread. So we appeal to God for our daily subsustenance. Give us this day our daily bread. But it could also mean... And there is a suggestion of it in the original in the gospel. Give us this day... Our super substantial bread, namely the Eucharist. So very often the apostles misunderstood our blessed Lord when he spoke of bread. When they were crossing the lake in the storm, they became frightened, and our blessed in the gospel gives the explanation. They did not take account of the mystery of the bread, of the miracle of the bread, when our blessed Lord multiplied the loaves and fishes in order to remind them that he had power to give us the bread of life. So the giving us, give us this day our daily bread, therefore, means not only that which is necessary for daily life, but in an applied sense also the Eucharist. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness is reciprocal. We are forgiven by God as we forgive our neighbor. Our Lord mentioned that in the continuation of the gospel. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. If we, however, hold grudges, we shut off the forgiveness of God. He cannot give it to us. Now, this forgiveness of God sometimes will require great effort on our part. I have a... Friends, I have friends, husband and wife, who suffered a great deal in prison. But before they were in prison under the communists, the husband was visited by the Nazi, by a Nazi. The husband and wife were Jew, born Jew, but then Lutheran. And the husband said to the Nazi, what have you been doing the last two weeks? He said, killing Jews. How many did you kill? Oh, he said, about 30,000 in two weeks. Were you in this particular village? Yes. How many Jews did you kill there? Oh, he said, I killed every Jew in that town. Do you ever ask God for forgiveness? No, I don't believe there's any such thing as forgiveness. And the husband said, let us see. My wife, Sabina, is upstairs asleep. She has not heard this conversation. I shall call her down. He said, Sabina... This is the man who killed your father, your mother, your three brothers, and two sisters. Sabina looked at him intently and then threw her arms around his neck and kissed him and said, as God forgives you, I forgive you. And the Nazi threw himself on his knees and begged forgiveness. So forgiveness is reciprocal. And lead us not into temptation. That means trial. Do not bring us into any trial that will be too great for us. First of all, we have trials. Remember that our blessed Lord said in this world you will have tribulation. This life is not supposed to be easy. We're working out something. Life is a combat. A warfare so we're asking god please do not put me in any war that may be too great for me lest i fall or be wounded but deliver us from evil actually it is not the proper ending is not deliver us from evil but deliver us from the evil one deliver us from the devil deliver us from Satan and there is a devil then at the end we say Amen Amen means I've said it may I live up to it may it be fulfilled in me You never heard our blessed Lord say at the end of a prayer, Amen. We put the Amen in there. Our Lord did not. Unless it was meant for us to say it, as he actually did say. Our Lord always began his sentences when he wished to emphasize something with, Amen, Amen, I say to you. In other words, I give you the truth. Amen, amen. We put the amen at the very end. Now, this is the Our Father that we say so often. We will say it during the Mass. And now I hope that it will have new meaning for you. And how do we know now that the Heavenly Father is so good? Well, we know it because our Lord has told us. You know, it almost seems as if the three persons of the Blessed Trinity are playing hide-and-seek. We never knew the Father well until the Son came and told us. Then we knew the Father was full of love and mercy. How do we know our Lord? If our Lord reveals the Father, who reveals our Lord? The Holy Spirit. So our Lord said, I will send you the Holy Spirit who will reveal me. Who will make me clear to you. This is the purpose of the Spirit. Not odd manifestations. Any spirit that does not come to deepen this love of our blessed Lord and become truly his spirit is not the spirit of Christ. I suppose I could sum up the Our Father by telling you never to be discouraged. You have a Heavenly Father, and now this morning you have learned some Aramaic And it would be well occasionally to think of yourselves as little children. Because remember, only no old people are ever going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's right. Our Lord said, unless you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have to become young. And if you think yourself young, you will begin calling the Heavenly Father in your mind and soul Abba. Abba. Abba, who art in heaven. God love you.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living where we've been enjoying the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I would invite you to join me again next week, and I'd ask you to bring a friend along next time. And so until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith here on Radio Maria Canada.